are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. I had originally planned to read all of Genesis chapter 1 into chapter 2, um, but I'm going to, I think this passage is possibly familiar for most of us, maybe not for everyone, but I'm going to read enough of it to give us a vision of what's happening in Genesis chapter 1, and then I'm going to skip to the end of chapter 1 and go into chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1, I believe it's on the screen as well, you can follow along, verses 1 through 8, and then I'll read verses 26 through 2, 3. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day day. I'm going to jump down to verse 26. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female He created them, and God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for you. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
When my family and I moved into our neighborhood they were in, about a year ago we moved, I went on a walk with my dog on one of the first days there and encountered a tree that looked oddly out of place. In fact, as I stared at it, I thought to myself, that looks like a banana tree. I continued on each day passing it, uh, quite confused of how there's a banana tree in Pittsburgh, western Pennsylvania. Finally, one day, uh, as I was walking, there was a man out tending the tree, getting it ready for the fall, and I asked him about it. And sure enough, he goes, yeah, this is indeed a banana tree that he had planted some time years ago, and it's continued to grow over the years. Now, if I brought someone into my neighborhood blindfolded and had them look at this tree alone out of context of the entire neighborhood without any knowledge of the county, the state, or the region, they could likely draw the wrong conclusions about where I live, couldn't they? They might assume this is a tropical environment. But if you took a view from the sky, you'd see the entire forest for what it is. We have an expression for this, don't we? Don't miss the forest for the trees. That is, don't misunderstand the bigger picture or context of something because you're just looking at a few parts of it or a singular object. Most of the time when we come to the Bible, it can be confusing, can't it? Certain parts of the Bible have beautiful, composed songs and poetry. Other sections have tragedy with the death of the innocent or triumph where a hero stands for truth and justice. But then there's other parts where we encounter images of a beast with the body of a lion or wings of an eagle and the head of an ox. Or we find Jesus on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth in Revelation. Some of it makes sense, but other parts are just kind of weird, right? So what are we to make of all this? What are we to make of this book we call the Bible? Well, if we were to read the Bible merely in its broken down sections, sort of disconnected from each other, it would be confusing, like a big pile of Lego bricks, multicolored ones, just sitting on the floor. But when... But what we want to do in this series that we're going to be doing over the uh, month of Advent here is to reveal how the Bible, even with all its parts, makes sense as one unified story. And it's through this one unified story where not only do the seemingly disconnected parts of Scripture, but also our own stories that are often filled with confusion and our own stories and lives that are often filled with discontinuity, and come connected to this story. This is because the Bible story is God's story that all points to Jesus. And his story, God's story, is our story. What we will do over the course of Advent, so that's going to be the next four weeks, is unpack the four sections of this grand, we'll say, narrative, this grand drama, this grand story. We'll see today creation, how God created us good because he is good. Next week, we'll see, and I think there's some images up here, 
These images below are supposed to depict each of these weeks. The second week, next week, Luke will take us through separation, how living outside of God's goodness separates us from God. The third week, Pastor Daniel will take us through the concept of reconciliation, how God planned to reunite and redeem himself to us. And lastly, completion, how God will one day make all things new. Our hope and prayer through the series is for you to see not how God fits into your story, but rather how you fit into his story and his plan to redeem you through the person and work of Jesus. Various culture, media, politics, and our neighbors are telling us stories constantly. We hear stories all day long, and we all long to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And God's narrative here is his invitation into reality. While we realize, I realized this morning that not everyone accepts this story, though. In fact, there may be some of you today that say, I, I don't know that I even consider myself a Christian, Andrew. So I, I don't know what I'm going to think about this story you're talking about. And I even expect that there may be some of you that will hear this story over the next four weeks or listening online, and, and you may reject this story. But I ask this, that if you are skeptical of this story, that you at least put on the lenses of the Christian worldview for the next four weeks. Try them on. When you walk into Vision Care or whatever, there's an ad there or online. Facebook will probably delete that because we accidentally did an ad. When you walk in there, they'll say, try these on. Do they work? And you go, no, I don't know. Just try them on. Try on the lenses of the Christian worldview as we tell this story and take a look at it through Scripture. So this morning we'll look at creation. And the theme is simple this morning. It's very simple. God created the world. And the goal is that you see that God is the creator and we are not. You are not. Very simple, the theme this morning. We'll, we'll hang our thoughts this morning on four hooks that are revealed through this first two, these first two chapters of Genesis. God is self-sufficient. Secondly, God speaks. Thirdly, God is good. And lastly, God is communal. So those will be our four thoughts. Those will be the four hooks. So I'll wake you up each time in between to hang your thoughts on those hooks. First of all, God is the self sufficient creator. Genesis starts assuming that God exists. You might be familiar with reading a story that begins this way. Once upon a time. Well, the biblical story starts much the same way. In the beginning. This is important to observe because it points to a crucial aspect of the biblical story. The beginning of the story does not tell us how God, how God exists, it just tells us that he does exist. That is, in the beginning, God was. While all else was not, God was. Let that sit in for a minute. While all else was not, God was. In the beginning, what's the first word? God. He is the eternal one, and this is his story, not about his beginnings, but about his sovereign act of creating and beginning everything else. This is a profoundly dramatic manner in which to begin the story because it establishes the mysterious nature of God's eternal character. 
right from the beginning. And as in every good story, there is a main character. That is, the introduction of the main character, the protagonist in the biblical drama, God himself. I want to pause for a moment here, though. It's important to note, though, that the scriptures themselves, in the opening chapters of Genesis specifically, are not a scientific manual. Genesis is a true account, but it's not a science manual. Craig Bartholomew says this, in these chapters, we are told the story of creation, but not to satisfy our 21st century curiosity concerning the details of how God made the world. Even in Christian circles, there can be vigorous debates about the natures of these days and the time between these uh, various uh, uh, chapters and things that are happening. But that's not the point of Genesis 1 and 2. The point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not about those things. What the author is attempting to do is bring us into a worldview. What's a worldview? It's a grid through which you interpret life. It's like, again, a set of glasses, a set of lenses that you put on and see life through. It's what you use to make sense of life. So it means that you and I, everyone in this room, everyone in the balcony, everyone online, not one of us ever are religiously or philosophically neutral about anything. We're never unbiased totally in the way we look at life. No one reasons from a blank slate. There's some set of presuppositions that you and I each hold to that form our beliefs. So it's essential to understand that how you and I operate daily, how we operate, what we do is a reflection of what we believe about the world and the God that created it, and what we believe the driving story is behind all of life. Your beliefs concerning God and humans around you and what you deem as ultimate truth will establish what you believe about everything else in life. So the Bible is not primarily a dictionary. It's not primarily a history book. It's not primarily a scientific manual. It's not a counseling manual. It's not primarily a how-to pamphlet on Christian living. The book, the Bible, this book at its core is a story about God. The Bible is not fundamentally about us, mankind, but about God. The Bible is fundamentally a story. However, it's not a story in the sense of the many stories you and I interact with each day. One author says this, normally when we read myths or novels or when we watch movies or television or go to a play, we're meant in le- at, at least in part to forget about our own world and enter and live in the fictional world for a time. We kind of escape reality, right? We're getting out of where we're at and into an- another world. And when the story ends, we emerge on the other side, return to our own world, and resume our own lives. But scripture, unlike those movies, television shows, plays, books, novels, unlike these other stories, it's not an escape from reality, it's an escape to reality. When we enter into the scriptures, we find we are able to interpret life and understand it. So Genesis starts off with this assumption of God as the central actor in the story. 
this creation by act of God himself points to the reality that he is not part of the creation himself. He's the sovereign king, absolutely free with his creatures as his subjects. God is distinctly different than all his creation. All things respond to him, not vice versa. He speaks and life is formed. You see that creation is a responder to God, the creator. Even time itself is under the directive of God. Bruce Waltke says this, God does not create in time, but with time. God exists outside of time and creates with time itself. So the story makes clear that we must not replace the worship of the creator with the worship of the creation. He is clearly the Lord of the whole universe. The sun, the moon, the plants, the stars, the animals, and all humanity are under his governance here. God is not the creation, and the creation is not God. Replacing the created with the creator is essentially what the scriptures begin to tell us through the rest of this story is called idolatry. Anytime you replace God the creator, with something he created. It breaks order. It creates discord. It creates disunity in all of life. And this continues, this theme will start popping up over the coming weeks. This theme of God's existence being sourced in himself is found all throughout scriptures. In the New Testament, Acts 17, 24 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all life, give all mankind life and breath and everything. Psalm 50, 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So what should our response be to this? How how do we respond to this? Psalm 95, 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The creature's response to the creator is always rightly worship. God is the actor. Mankind is the responder in this story, in the entire story of Scripture. In fact, Scripture goes on to declare that we intuitively become aware that this world around us reveals something bigger than ourselves. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can look around and know there's something bigger than me. So what is the implication upon humanity for us if God is the only self-sufficient one an independent one, if he's the self-sufficient, independent creator, and we are not, what does that mean? It means we are the opposite. We are limited. We are dependent. That the answers are not inside of ourselves. That there's something outside of us ourselves where truth is found. Where do you find yourself living outside of this reality? in really an alternate reality. Have you ever met someone where they tell you a story, they tell you their perspective on something, and you go, I think that's an alternate reality. I don't 
think that is happening, right, you go, you're, you're off somewhere else. That's how we live. That's the alternate reality. That's what God says to us. You're in an alternate reality when, when you and I think that we are independent, when we are unlimited, when we can find the answers within ourselves. But not only is God a self-sufficient creator, he is a speaking creator. He is a speaking God. He's a God of words. Eight times in Genesis 1, I, we didn't read through all of Genesis 1, but if you go through that, you'll see this phrase, and God said. I think, yeah, all the references are up here um, if you want to go study those out. Eight times he says, and God said, with the repeated following phrase five times, and it was so. Now, the author of Genesis isn't just like running out of words. Oh, I'm just going to say this over and over. And God said, and it was so. And God, you know, as if it's just like, I don't have a wide vocabulary. I'm just going to say it, right? Your teachers, uh, young people, or even uh, those of you in college would say, you know, widen your vocabulary, mix it up. Don't say the same thing over, over. This is poetic. This is not just sort of, again, it's not a science manual. It's not a history book. This is a beautiful poem. God said, and it was so. And as every parent says, if I'm repeating myself, it's important. So the writer is repeating himself, and it's important for us to see this. It highlights for the reader the creative power of God's words. That is, God speaks. When he speaks, things happen. He says, let there be, and every time there is. Let that sink in. Let it be, and it is. This shows God's all-encompassing power. He speaks, and life begins. His words create out of nothingness. They form life where there is void. And this is the pattern we actually see again through all of Scripture. The words of God are life-changing, life-forming, void-filling, because he's the he is the God over all creation. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In Mark 4, Jesus is on a boat with his disciples. And there's, there's a storm. And they're like, Jesus, are you sitting there asleep? So he gets up. It says he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the next phrase says, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus' own words powerfully controlled all creation. In Matthew 6, which we were in for the Sermon on the Mount series, Jesus says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? If the God who created the universe with his word and then continually provides for his universe can handle those things, are you not much more valuable than they? Can he not provide for you? So we see that God's words are powerful. But the writer continues unwrapping the layers of who this creator is. Third hook here, those of you asleep. Not only is he self-sufficient and powerful in his words, 
but he is also good. He's not just self-sufficient. He's not just powerful, but he is good. And through this continued use of repetition, again, using the word good seven times, the narrator notes all creation is good to him. Um, One pastor noted that when when this continued phrase of good here is not like a quality control thing, um, as if God is on a conveyor belt with a widget going by going, good, boom, good, boom, good, boom. All right, that's not what's happening. Jesus, uh, God is saying with full emotion and full of joy and full satisfaction, this is good. Like when Pastor Rob makes something on his grill, if you're around him, he always goes, this is good. This is good. It's full of satisfaction or joy. Or, or Luke when he's at Wendy's at midnight or, or Taco Bell, wherever that's at. That is good. It's Jesus, God is speaking with joy. He's looking at his creation saying, this is good. God is well pleased with his creation. He looks over all his creation and says, it is very good at the end. The creation around us, the animals, the trees, our vocations, music, society, culture, art, the many disciplines and passions you find as your occupations around you daily intrinsically carry the beautiful image of God and reflect the joy and goodness of our creator. This is where your life connects to this story. But you might be thinking, Andrew, I look all around creation and see bad things. I look at myself and I don't see good. I'm not well pleased with the world around me externally or myself internally. Or others of you might be saying, Andrew, what about the theological category of human depravity? What does this mean then that God's creation is good? Well, yes, we intuitively know, every single person sitting here this morning intuitively knows that, this story, that in reading this story this morning, something is off. Something about this story disconnects with your experience right now. Because everything doesn't feel or look good around you right now. I'm not going to steal the thunder of next week when Luke preaches on the problem of sin and our separation. But you and I should feel this tension this morning. That there's this beautiful place of paradise called Eden where all is right and good. And it's something we all long for. We ache for it. It takes our breath away, longing for it. What makes your heart skip a beat this morning when you hear this idea of a perfectly good creation and that there's this disconnect between that picture and your reality that you're living in and your experience? This story gives us a vision, it gives us glasses, it gives us lenses that the way things are right now aren't the way they always were or the way they should be or the way they always will be. What in your life fits this category 
that things are not the way they should be. Why don't you just pause for a moment, 10 seconds. I'm going to be quiet. What comes to mind that isn't the way it should be? That doesn't line up with this beautiful picture of Eden. I want that tension to sit through this morning to some degree. Because the intent of this series is not to resolve all that this morning. Because it isn't any good story. In the first five minutes, you don't know the conclusion. But conversely, this also means that we shouldn't be surprised when we see God's common grace in the midst of a broken world. God's creation is very good. Um, when Kelly and I first moved to Pittsburgh, I may have told this story before, so I apologize if I have, but let's tell it again. When we first moved to Pittsburgh, we had some neighbors in Bloomfield that were just the most hospitable, caring, loving, generous people. And I told Kelly within our first week, these people must be Christians. They're just, you know, who else loves their neighbor as themselves like that? Didn't take long in conversation to find out, nope, they, you know, not interested in God, not interested in Jesus. Now, you, you might hear that and go, well, does that put an argument for the fact that, you know what, I don't really need God to change my life. Look, I, can, I, I meet non-Christians, unbelievers, non-religious people that are far more generous, far more kind, far more hospitable. Did I just go off of than any Christian or religious person I have ever met. So what, what am I to make of that? What am I to do with that? Does that argue against God? I'd submit that it doesn't. It's actually an argument for the very thing we see here in Genesis, that God created a good creation that we'll see in a moment images him. Humans, man and woman, particularly image, or image bearers of him. <clears throat> So it would not be odd to see people imaging God. The goodness of creation reveals God's own innate goodness. He's above all. He's the creator. It might make you think he's way out there. But he's also very personal and near. As the creator, distinctly different than his creation, he's not disinterested in creation. He's not cold towards his creation. He's above all things yet personally involved in the affairs of humanity in creating a beautiful world that is good. Many people view God as abstract, an impersonal force involved in our lives, but contrary to that picture, contrary to that notion, Genesis shows us a providentially personal God involved in our lives understanding god's goodness is an important is important because as this story unfolds and we'll see next week we'll see that sin is simply a perversion of something good that god has designed it's just the opposite of god's good design lastly god is a communal creator he is self-existent this self-existent, word-speaking, 
good creator reveals something unique about himself and the man and woman that he creates here in Genesis chapter 1. The creation of humanity introduces us to the second major character in the story, or you might will find out as the antagonist, you might say, the pinnacle of God's creation. Mankind has a unique and special relationship in God's kingdom that the rest of creation does not. Man bears a unique likeness and special relationship and a representative role with the creator that the rest of the creation does not experience. Let me read again Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. And note, he says it this way, male and female, he created them. So what does it mean that humans are made in the image of God? Well, we get some clues from this passage. Right after stating that he created man in, man in his own image, the writer of Genesis states that God created mankind as male and female. Humanity has a plural quality, male and female. But as the story progresses in the chapter two, into chapter 2, we see that this plurality, male and female, is also unified. There's unity in this plurality. There's equality, yet diversity of genders. They become one flesh, it says in chapter 2, verse 24. They're singular. They're unified, yet diverse in their responsibility and in their roles and in their gifts. We see Eve referred to in chapter 2 as a helper fit for the man. She offers something he doesn't, and he offers something she doesn't. Yet they are equally made good in God's sight, equally human, equally image bearers, and we'll see in coming weeks, equally, equally flawed but distinct. Chapter 2, verse 18 states that it's not good for the man to be alone. So Adam and Eve were not meant to live in isolation. So what's the significance of all this? And why, after saying, I'm going to make mankind in my image, the, the writer immediately goes to this unity and plurality of man and woman. It's because that's the... The man and woman together distinctly are together imaging God. We'll see the storyteller here is wanting us to see that the relational, communal nature of humanity is a reflection of some type of relational, communal unity in the Godhead. That is, man and woman together uniquely represent the unity and the plurality of God himself. The equality, yet diversity, and what we come to understand as the scriptures unfold as the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. The scriptures are clear that there's only one God, but this singular God is triune in nature. Father, Son, and Spirit. Singular, but plural. All equally divine, but diverse in role and person in the Godhead. We see the clues here in verse 26. Let us Make man in our image after our likeness. 
God is complex. We're not supposed to be able to understand that. God is complex. And as image bearers, we participate in this complexity. So what do we learn from this? What are you supposed to take away? We have first have to see ourselves through the lens of God, not the other way around, or else we will always create a distortion. Kids, have you ever been in one of those weird, or adults, weird funky mirrors that are like this at the science center or something, and it's just goofy. It makes you, makes you look really tall or really squatty, right? It's a bad mirror. We... God doesn't mirror us. We mirror God. So any God that you form out of starting with yourself, I'm like this, so God must be like this, is backwards. It's a bad mirror. It's a distortion. We mirror God. He doesn't mirror us. Secondly, we must see others through the lens of God. So we must see ourselves through the lens of God, but we must see others through the lens of God as image bearers of him. James 3, 9 says, With our tongues we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. When we curse, criticize, speak evil of, speak untruth about, show favoritism towards others with our mouths, we demean God. We demean his creative work. As Pastor Luke often says, we are more like each other than different. No person is more or less an image bearer than another person. So not only where are you creating a God that just looks like you, but where are you demeaning the God who created the other image bearers around you? Thirdly, to be truly human is to live in relationship to God and each other. We see this fleshed out in the story of Scripture in the church, in the New Testament, that the church is a body Paul says, he uses this imagery of a body with multiple members, each distinct but unified as a whole and dependent on each other. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. Our longing for community exists because of the story we live in. When you long for community, it's because you were designed for community. And our rejection at times of community is really entering an alternate reality. When we say, I don't need others, I can do this alone, I can figure this out alone, we're really living in an alternate world. Fourthly, God wants to know you. Genesis 1, 2 says, God wants to know us. Bruce Walkie says, man is made like God so that God can communicate himself to his people. Being made in the image and likeness of God means we can know God. We can be in relationship with God, unlike my little, wonderful, cute dog. And I love my dog. We should love animals because God made animals good, right? We can do, but my dog does not image God in the way that he designed man and woman to image him so that we can be in relationship with him. God wants to know us. And lastly, God has a purpose for us. A place in this story, at the pinnacle of creation, humanity was created in the image of God. Why? To promote God's name and fulfill God's mission. Not because of any void in God, 
but that we might enter into relationship with him. Man and woman were also given responsibility to be stewards and caretakers of his creation, multiply and reproduce and follow his commands. God has a purpose for us. We were designed for another God, and we were designed for each other, other humans. We were designed for another God, and we were designed for each other humans. But did you know that Genesis isn't the only narrative about creation? I'd, it really would, we would really be uh, amiss to stop there. The New Testament has one as well, which shows us the beautiful unity of Scripture. John 1.1 states, In the beginning was the Word. You should catch that, those first three words. In the beginning was the word. This is all the way in the New Testament. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Who is John referring to here? Jesus. Sunday school answer. Jesus. Paul states it this way. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Do you see that as this scripture unfolds, we find out that Jesus is present in creation as the creator. In the beginning, God spoke, and it was Jesus, the very word of God, the son of God, Jesus himself, that was speaking and creating the world. But thousands of years later, God spoke again, even more loudly than before, not generally, but in a special way, revealing himself through his son. This time, the word, God himself, became flesh and dwelled among us as the second Adam. What during Advent we refer to as the incarnation, the enfleshing of God himself, the one named Emmanuel, Matthew says, which means what? God with us. The word of God in flesh itself, the grace of God in flesh, in the very flesh that he made Adam and Eve. Pause and think about that. We've thought through this story. God creates out of nothing, self-existent. The story starts assuming God. And yet we see later, thousands of years later, that God himself in Jesus Christ takes on the very flesh of his creation. In the very flesh that he made Adam and Eve. In the very flesh that he made you and me. This Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, Paul says. The one made in the very likeness of God who created the universe and upholds it. And it is the, Jesus is the exact image, the exact replica of God. Because he is God. That God, Jesus, took on the likeness and image of us so that he might take on our place. And as one pastor said, and be decreated so that we could be recreated into his image. He lived the life of, his, of an image bearer that we can never live. Jesus perfectly promoted 
the Father's name perfectly. And he fulfilled the Father's mission perfectly so that he could die the death that we deserve. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God spoke powerful words and life was formed in the beginning, so God speaks into our lives now and new life is formed and we're remade and we're conformed into into image bearers of Jesus himself. Again, God is the actor and we are the responder. And resultingly, believers in Jesus are referred to as what? A new creation in Christ. As image bearers, we are now designed to be promoting Christ's name and fulfilling the great commission that we talked about last week in Matthew 28 as his ambassadors with the good news here, there, and everywhere. Brothers and sisters, this story tells us that we, you and I, exist for God. Lasting purpose for living will be found in responding to God's ordered nature and creation. To understand ourselves rightly, we must understand ourselves in relationship to God. Understanding yourself as an image bearer of God rectifies the dilemma of idolizing our significance, which just puffs us up with pride, or devaluing our existence, which just leads us into despondency. God is a good creator who himself, in Jesus, condescended. What does it kind of, to come down, that's what condescend means. Jesus condescended and came down and took on our flesh into our world to offer us hope.